You're listening to the Memphis MedCast, a podcast series from Memphis Medical Society. Find out more about our mission and services at mdmemphis.org. Hello out there in Memphis Healthcare land. This is Clint Cummins, CEO of the Memphis Medical Society. We're excited to bring you episode two of our Memphis MedCast podcast. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that is gaining attention nationally in healthcare, but it's probably not something the public knows much about, and that's physician burnout. This episode is going to serve as a launching point for a new physician well-being program with the Memphis Medical Society called Thrive. The program will serve as a confidential source of support for physicians who need a licensed provider to talk about stressors in their life. We will publish more on how to access this program early in 2019. On top of the great conversation we're going to have today, physicians can claim CME credit for listening. Simply email info at mdmemphis.org if you need a verification for your CME hour. Now on to the fun stuff. Let me introduce our special guest today, Dr. Clay Jackson. Dr. Jackson is a palliative care physician at West Cancer Center here in Memphis. He's a board member of the Memphis Medical Society and current president of the Academy of Integrative Pain Management. You can read more about Dr. Jackson at mdmemphis.org or westcancercenter.org. Uh, Dr. Jackson also has a keen interest uh, in physician well-being, which is why he's with us today. Uh, welcome, Dr. Jackson. Clint, thank you very much. I'm excited that all of our colleagues are online uh, listening today uh, in an effort not only to earn CME, but to better our own lives. When we can operate from a position of wellness ourselves, when we attempt to help our patients to be well. And so that's what we'll be focusing on today. And I'm excited about discussing it with you and all of our colleagues who are online at this time. That sounds great. Uh, before we get started, uh, per usual in a healthcare presentation, we've got a couple of disclosures to give. Uh, Dr. Jackson is a consultant uh, for Atsuka, and he has partnered on this presentation with Aaron Tolbert, who's the founder of Mid-Level U. Uh, they work together to dis uh, discuss all the content uh, that we're going to talk about uh, today. Uh, Dr. Jackson, let's let's start by illustrating an all too familiar dynamic for physicians, and that is uh, physicians are supposed to heal, therefore they can't be ill, meaning physicians are wired and trained to power through and be omnipotent when it comes to managing stress. You know, that's uh, the reality that we paint, uh, maybe to the public, maybe to ourselves, but unfortunately, it's not the reality that pertains, Clint. Um, it turns out that some of the behavioral patterns and cultural patterns that we enculturated in training are adaptive for training. This idea of uh, attention to detail, uh, maybe being uh, very um, uh, uh, obsessive compulsive about, uh, say, studying or performing repetitive tasks. All of these things can help us succeed in training or maybe studying for the boards or learning a particularly difficult procedure. However, um, they're maladaptive for life. And uh, presenting ourselves as being sort of Teflon superhero, pull open the white jacket or the blue scrubs, and there's a, a big S underneath for superwoman or superman, uh, is really not the way the world works. And it's not sustainable over the course of a career. And that's one of the reasons that we see uh, some of the high rates of physician burnout, surgeon burnout uh, in current medical culture. All right. We, we know there's a lot of statistics out there. Um, about burnout. Uh, it's all over the spectrum. The, the long story short, uh, burnout's a real factor both for physicians and our, our healthcare uh, uh, culture in general. Uh, 
So a lot of a lot of people might uh, veer towards an area uh, when you talk about um, burnout that uh, goes further down the uh, spectrum of depression. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between burnout and depression? Well, absolutely. Clint, as you mentioned, burnout is fairly common uh, among physicians and surgeons. And depending on which uh, specialty that you look at, um, surveys have shown that approximately 40% to 50% of physicians and surgeons are burned out. Lower end of that scale would be, say, dermatologists and psychiatry who have um, uh, less frequent patient contact or it is uh, patient con- in the case of psychiatry or in the case of dermatology, um, Pardon the pun here, but it's uh, it's uh, skin deep contact. Uh, typically, don't develop uh, um, as many challenging interpersonal situations in, in dermatology. Um, so those specialties tend to be low on the burnout scale, sort of the 38, 42 percent range. High end of the range tends to be specialties that are um, either uh, responsible for knowing a lot about a lot of things, such as primary care, internal medicine, family medicine, or uh, specialties where the interface between technology and mortality is acute. I'm thinking emergency department and uh, ICU. In the critical care specialties and the emergent care specialties, uh, we see uh, highest rates of burnout because, uh, again, that's where people's expectation is things will get better because machines are beeping and everybody knows that nothing happens while a machine is beeping uh, in the modern medical myth. But unfortunately, uh, patient expectations are, are, are not met. With respect to your question about what's the difference between burnout and depression, they're both bad, they're both negative, they're both uh, to some degree psychological and affect our workspace, but um, they differ in this. Depression is global, whereas uh, burnout is work-specific. So depression has to do with your entire life, whereas burnout has to do with your work. It can involve uh, work-home conflict, but specifically it's expressed uh, in a work setting. If we look at burnout as it was defined by Maslach in the late 70s, early 80s, in the sociology literature, uh, Maslach was not just looking at clinicians. Um, the Maslach research group was looking at coal miners or you know, traffic cops, every, everybody. And burnout was defined as three specific things, three specific domains. It's not just I'm mad at my boss or I'm not getting paid enough or um, I hate um, you know, my new EHR. Burnout had three specific areas, and those areas are as follows. Uh, a low sense of personal accomplishment. Uh, you know, I just don't get satisfaction out of this job anymore. This is just not me anymore. Low sense of personal accomplishment. Um, depersonalization, which is uh, just a sense of I'm going through the motions. I'm, it's just like a shift worker. I'm checking in. I'm checking out. I'm not putting myself into the job. And then also, uh, in addition to a low sense of personal accomplishment, uh, depersonalization, emotional exhaustion. There's just not enough of me left to put into this. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just exhausted. I don't, I have compassion fatigue. I can't do it anymore. So those three areas, low sense of personal accomplishment, depersonalization and emotional exhaustion are the three core characteristics of burnout as it's classically been defined in the literature. So I, I know we're going to strike a nerve as we dive deeper into this. Uh, can you talk about some of the specific causes of burnout? So there's the, the general ones that you gave, but there's some statistics and data out there that uh, get very specific on uh, what are the causes of burnout. Can you talk about those? Well, in a global sense, uh, Clint, burnout is the gap between what we're doing uh, and what we're expected to do. Um, we want what we're doing to match what we're expected to do. 
but in a, a specific sense of clinicians, um, there are certain things that, that, that do stand out and, and they're grouped. You know, we talked about, I hate my boss, but actually for physicians and surgeons, that's not very common. The way the healthcare uh, system has been historically structured for good or ill in the modern medical model, um, physicians and surgeons had quite a bit of autonomy, sort of at the top of the pecking order in terms of decision making. As you know, um, over the last decade, decade and a half, that landscape has shifted quite a bit and more clinicians are now employed by hospital systems or large multi-specialty groups uh, than were previously uh, employed. Whereas the private practice model predominated the latter half of the 20th century, so far the 21st century looks like um, a larger healthcare organizational um, uh, entity uh, tends to be the, the employer. But surprisingly, difficult employer or difficult colleagues or staff, that's at the bottom of the list in terms of uh, what causes burnout. On a seven-point Likert scale where one is not at all important, seven is extremely important, uh, those difficult employer, difficult colleagues, those ranked a three. So they were less than, less than halfway uh, to the mark of distress. Whereas the number one category for physician burnout or clinician burnout was too many bureaucratic tasks. You know, this is something that I think we can all relate to. Um, the EHR has made our workspace different. I wouldn't say anybody would say that it's made our workspace easier. And in a typical day, if you look at what doctors do, um, we tend to see if, if, if you're in a clinic setting or you're in an, uh, an urgent care ER setting, you typically see in a given day 20-odd patients, 20-ish uh, patients. But in addition to that, you got, on average, listen to these stats, 19 calls, 17 emails, 12 prescription refills, uh, 20 lab reports, 11 radiographs to review, 14 specialty reports. And you add those up. Remember, I saw uh, yesterday in my practice, I saw 25. But there are 93 ancillary tasks uh, that I did as well. So um, in an average day, I see 25 patients, but I do basically 100 other things. So four things that don't involve seeing a patient, which is kind of why I went to medical school, um, for every patient that I get to see. Those uh, administrative and ancillary tasks, uh, some surveys say we spend about 47% of our time in a given day in front of a computer. Um, doctors were not designed to be data entry clerks. And so that's really uh, challenging us right now in terms of burnout. And it does rank number one in surveys in terms of what presents burnout for us. Yeah, I can I can recall reading an article out there that did call uh, physicians the most expensive data entry clerks in the country. Um, and when you put it into that perspective, it really uh, shines a light on uh, the day to day dynamic for physicians. Uh, you gave some specific examples, Dr. Jackson, of of your own individual practice and uh, that touched on another topic I wanted to address. And, you know, there's so many different factors that uh, can affect a physician's burnout rate, but where does the type of practice fall uh, in that discussion? Well, as we said, um, you know, there are certain specialties that uh, tend to, um, to, to, to coalesce with burnout risk, and those are primary care specialties and high technology specialties with respect to ER and, and CCU. If you look at type of practice, a lot of people think, well, you know, it'd be great to uh, be great to be in private practice. I'm in academic practice. I don't like, you know, I have a lot of freedom, don't have a lot of autonomy. Um, boy, you know, I'd love to be outside these, uh, these university rules and be in private practice. But actually, academic faculty run about a 40 to 50% burnout rate, which is standard. 
Um, but private practice colleagues actually run um, a 60 to 67 percent, uh, 55 to 67% burnout rate. So their um, private practice comes maybe with a nice looking clinic, but there's a premium on it because you not only got to be a clinician and manage uh, those tasks, um, there are business administration tasks that come with private practice. Now, um, we don't have yet great granular data on what that looks like as employed private practice versus um, uh, independent private practice. And perhaps the employment model would be a middle way between the university model, uh, which traditionally somewhat in, insulated from economics uh, versus a private practice model, which is uh, very much at the forefront of economics. The employed model is, is sort of a middle way. And we're not sure um, how that's going to shake out as that model begins to, to, to predominate. Well, and I think it's important to note in what you said, even the low end for an academic practice is 37% burnout rate. That's way yeah. too high. So yeah, we're not, we're, we're not talking about folks that are just, uh, you know, singing out, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. We got two out of five people uh, that are, that are, that are really tired of their job and not getting emotional, spiritual, social, and professional satisfaction out of what they're doing. And that's a shame. It really is after all the investment education and training uh, that are put into uh, making a clinician. And then if you think about the work that we do, uh, it is really sacred work. We're, we're trying to help people to be the best that they can be, to be healthy and to be well. And, and, and really that should be soul building work, not soul destroying work. So the fact that we are, um, as clinicians and, and uh, participants in the healthcare system, um, if, if we allow it to degenerate into a situation that makes us burned out, um, you know, surely there's something that we can change. And uh, there are some strategies that I hope we'll get a chance to visit with, um, uh, visit together about today, because uh, we, we can make our work better. So uh, I think we will get to that. A couple of the other factors that I wanted to talk through. Uh, we know that age and career stage, which uh, are sometimes parallel, but not always, also uh, play a factor with burnout. Uh, what's some of the data around that? I guess the good news is it gets better. Uh, probably the bad news is it doesn't get better very fast. Um, there's a study of psychiatrists that showed that they basically looked at uh, uh, decades, 35 and under, you know, just in training or, or just out of practice, 36 to 45, 46, 55, then uh, on up to 66 and over. And basically burned out state in that 40%. Mark, which is sort of standard. Remember, two out of five is kind of your average uh, of burnout. But then it dropped to 20 percent uh, at 66 and over. So uh, it's good news that you can retire um, and, and uh, <laughs> uh, you don't retire because you're burned out. You, you get not burned out because you're able to retire. That's the way it looks on the data. So good news is it gets better. Bad news is it doesn't get better very fast. Uh, there was a more um, uh, detailed study that looked at um, all specialties in the United States is 7,300 docs and looking at all specialties, early career, um, uh, the, the mean age was 38. Um, if you looked at factors that contributed to burnout, it was home and work conflict. Um, if you look at mid career, uh, mean age 49, um, they worked the most hours. They had the highest rates of emotional exhaustion and burnout. And they had the lowest satisfaction with specialty choice and work-life balance. So mid-career looked to be the toughest time in this uh, survey of 7,300 United States doctors. Late career, and actually there were 3,900 docs that responded, 
to late career uh, to the survey. Um, they work the least hours, but it wasn't much. Um, mid-career folks are working 55 hours. Late career was working 50. So it's just five less hours. Um, their mean age was 61. They were taking about the same nights of call, two nights of call. But only 36% of them had a homework conflict. So the big change in late career looks to be that homework conflict is less a part um, of, the, of the contributing factors. The work doesn't change that much, but the conflict with home changes in late career. The other thing that I think I'd point out on this survey is, um, and we'll see this in, in, in a moment if we get a chance to talk about women in burnout, is that a little bit of extra work seems to go a long way. You think, well, heck, I'm working 50 hours. What's 55? It's just, it's just 10%. That, that extra half day of clinic, that extra half day of call rounding on the weekends seems to make a ton of difference. And that cutoff for people staying happy looks to be about 50 hours, 5-0. Getting up to 55, 58, 60 tends to be more than just uh, the additional hours. It seems to be a tipping point for sending people to a pretty tough place. Yeah, another striking number for me in the data is your number of respondents was over 7,200. Well over half of those respondents were in their late career suggesting they had the time to fill out the survey and the others didn't. So yeah, you should, you should be a statistician uh, or an epidemiologist because <laughs> uh, that's exactly uh, worth, uh, that's exactly the point. And it's worth, it's worth pointing out that, uh, you know, in early and mid career, sometimes we don't even have, a, we don't have the, the time or inclination to raise our hand and say what's going on. Uh, but in late career, people do have a stage uh, from which to do that. So in, in your uh, comments, you were really dancing all around a topic that is universal, not just amongst physicians, but and it's it's work life balance. I feel like we we hear about it all the time in our workplace. Uh, you know, it's something I talk about as the leader of my workplace on a regular basis. Uh, and it's something, you know, when it comes to wellness, it's something that definitely needs to be discussed. So what's the physician spin on work life balance? Well, historically, it's been don't have any. Um, historically, it's been that what defines a good doctor is someone who sacrifices himself and pardon the sexism there because the modern medical myth was it is a white male uh, who's a superhero, who is an individual genius and does everything for everybody. Um, we know uh, that medicine, thank goodness, is much more diverse than that. And certainly in the postmodern model, um, we've seen the advent of uh various uh, ethnicities, every, every color of the rainbow of person, every language group and ethnicity and background, wonderful. There's been a, a tremendous influx of women into medicine, which has made a tremendous difference in uh, even honestly paying attention to some of these issues. It was only in the 1990s and early 2000s after um, uh, we reached a, a, a critical mass, if you will, of the percentage of women in medicine that the ACGME came out, for instance, with the training uh, limitation in, in residency of 80 hours, eight zero hours per week. Remember that clinicians tend to burn out um, between 50 to 55 hours. And uh, <laughs> in 2000, we only decided that we would uh, limit them to 80 hours of, of a work week. Um, Osler had something to say about this um, at the turn of the last century. And in a, in a, in a speech to medical students, he, he warned them against this idea of delayed gratification that, you know, somehow you're going to live your life and, and you're going to um, just pour everything into your work. And then all of a sudden you'll, you know, you'll reach this halcyon period where you can set those things aside and just reap re the, the, the cultural and, and uh, societal rewards of your professional labors. And he said it this way. He said, engrossed 
late and soon in professional cares, you find too late with hearts given way that there is no place in your habit stricken souls for those gentler influences, which make life worth living. In gross late and soon in professional cares, you find too late with hearts given way that there's no place in your habit stricken souls for those gentler influences, which make life worth living. Guys, you know, I'm as guilty as everybody else. I get tied up with paperwork, the computer work, the, you know, this, that, you know, these quality measures, you know, that feedback survey and all of this. But if we don't remember why we're doing what we're doing, if we don't find something to put into us uh, as well as things that take out of us, then, then we become empty. And um, this idea of the dream deferred and delayed gratification is again, uh, adaptive for training. It's incredibly maladaptive for life. And, and uh, Ozer was wise, I think, to warn against it. So we've uh, mentioned briefly so far about the dynamic of uh, women entering the physician workforce. Uh, they're so prevalent today. We have a women in medicine interest group here at the Memphis Medical Society that uh, I would encourage anyone out there to uh, visit our website and send us an email if you're interested in participating in that group. They certainly have a lot of activities that are related to uh, burnout and just related to, to getting out and being collegial uh, with your colleagues outside of the, uh, outside of the workspace. So, uh, Dr. Jackson, what, what are some of the burnout characteristics that are unique to females? Well, as I said, a, a great uh, and, and, and wonderful achievement and, and benchmark for uh, medicine passing into the postmodern era that we're part of now is a tremendous diversity that we have. And we've already mentioned ethnic and language groups um, being uh, represented. Here in Memphis, we're at a, an international medical hub uh, because of St. Jude, Lebanon, or the Methodist and Baptist systems and other hospital systems that we have. Um, we're tremendously blessed to have physicians and surgeons literally from around the globe. And um, not only do we have ethnic diversity, which is wonderful, we have gender diversity and we have women in medicine uh, in the United States. Uh, females comprise 34 percent of the of the, the doctor workforce um, in the physician work life study. Looking at women, uh, basically, there are two issues that pop up with increased frequency with women. Now, women, of course, deal with all the other uh, things that any other physician or surgeon deals with, you know, schedules, uh, colleagues. Um, benchmarks, uh, staffing issues, et cetera, et cetera. But specifically, women uh, in a traditional domestic partnership, um, if it's a male-female uh, domestic partnership, um, women tend to uh, have more household duties that are expected uh, in traditional culture. And that's just the way it is. And, uh, you know, it tends to be, you know, red county, blue county, purple county, um, if, if, if a woman is living in a household, typically uh, it's expected that she has a lot of responsibility uh, for good or ill. That tends to be the way it is. And women have more work-life, uh, work-home balance conflict uh, because of that. In addition, uh, women tend to be the targets of sexual harassment in the workplace with more frequency than males. Now, it's not always the case, uh, but five out of six of physicians who, who deal with uh, workplace harassment uh, are, are female. And so we have to be sensitive to our, our female colleagues. And uh, for those of you who are uh, our female colleagues, uh, you have to be sensitive to, uh, you know, uh, to your own needs in terms of work-life balance. And also, uh, it's our responsibility for all of us as physician leaders and surgeon leaders 
to help create an environment where everyone is respected, where everyone feels safe, and everyone feels that they are valued for themselves and no one's being objectified or um, unduly expected to, um, you know, just work, 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 and, and never pay attention to home um, or, uh, you know, in an horrific case, uh, to, to be seen as, as an object for someone's else, someone else's entertainment. Um, because those days, but certainly all of society is paying more attention to those issues as, as we should. Um, and as a physician in certain community, we need to be leaders, um, uh, both male and female. So um, one, of, one of the other dynamics in this, there's a lot of uh, medical research out there that with a lot of the issues that we have in our society today, uh, you can point to them uh, uh, being a byproduct of something that happened earlier in life. And I think for the purpose of physicians, a lot of times we can point back to training. So how has uh, training affected burnout and where are we headed uh, with improvements in that? Well, sadly, Clint, you know, burnout, we talked about that gap between uh, what we're expected to do and what we can do or what we're doing. Um, that expectation gap grows dramatically during the first 90 days of internship. Um, the whole clinician burnout issue in the United States um, came into laser focus with um, the prominently uh, uh, covered suicides of, of two interns in New York City. Um, and uh, we began to do surveys uh, regarding residents, interns, et cetera, uh, during their, their training. And what we found is uh, there's, there's a tremendous, tremendous pressure that, that interns feel um, while, they're, uh, while they're in training. Suicidality, suicidal thoughts uh, go up threefold uh, during the intern year. Um, rates of depression uh, go up tremendously. Anxiety uh, increases tremendously during the intern year and the, and the resident year. And this also affects patient care. Um, uh, these uh, trainees who are experiencing burnout are more likely um, to report that they've given suboptimal care. Uh, there was one survey of 115 internal medicine residents, um, and they took the Maslock burnout inventory. Um, it's a 22-item scale for, for uh, formally measuring burnout. 76% of them met criteria. Now, remember, uh, physicians who are outside of training, it's 40% on average, 40 to 50%. This was 76% for internal medicine residents. So about uh, a half again increase, about a 50% increase over um, physicians who are out. Of those who reported um, burnout, uh, they, they, they basically, 53% of them said they had given suboptimal care. Um, if they not, didn't report burnout, only 21% reported suboptimal patient care. So there's about a 2.5 uh, hazard ratio of a self-report of suboptimal care if an, an internist um, rated themselves as burned out. So uh, burnout is highly correlated with patient outcomes. And so just beyond the fact of being nice human beings and wanting to take care of everybody and want everybody to have a good life, if for no other reason than patient outcomes, we need to be critically attuned uh, to burnout specifically for those who are in training in early and mid-career. So you touched on earlier as well the 
you know, changing dynamic in the practice of medicine. So many uh, physicians are now uh, employed by a larger uh, system and they have an employer uh, that they work for. Uh, so what are some of those systemic factors, uh, particularly at the employer level, uh, where and how does physician burnout affect the employer? If you're in Memphis and you work for Methodist, Baptist, Regional One, uh, St. Francis, uh, uh, even your own practice model at West Clinic, what's, uh, what are the changing dynamics from the employer level? Well, first of all, uh, patient satisfaction. Uh, patient satisfaction goes down when the clinician is burned out because they don't bring themselves to the table. And remember, people don't believe in, in doctors because of medicine. They believe in medicine because of doctors. Treatments um, work better. Patients are more adherent when uh, patients have a healthy therapeutic alliance with the clinician. So as docs, when we walk in the room, when we walk in the surgical suite, when we walk in the ambulatory surgery center or the ER uh, department, um, we need to present a healthy version of ourselves, uh, not just faking it. We need to be a healthy version of ourselves in order for patients to believe in what we're doing and to, to sort of latch on to what we're doing um, and be uh, adherent to the plan. Um, is study of study of surgeons, for instance, 8,000 surgeons uh, reported survey last 90 days, nine of them said they'd had a major medical error and it was much more common, much more common to have major medical errors if those surgeons were burned out. And so, you know, it's not just the talking specialties where burnout becomes a problem. Uh, if you've got a scalpel specialty or, or a needle specialty and, you, um, and you're burned out, it, the likelihood that you're going to deliver uh, suboptimal care skyrockets if you're burned out. So if I'm the CEO of Baptist, if I'm the CEO of, of, of Tenant, if I'm the CEO of, of, of Delta Medical Center, um, i got to make sure that my staff is, is healthy. Uh, because patient outcomes are going to be poor, patient satisfaction is going to be poor with burned out clinicians. And finally, you know, if, a, if we go to burn out to burn through, so I, I don't just burn out staff, um, but, but I burn through staff. When you look at replacement, um, basically replacement cost for a, a, a physician or a surgeon, there are basically 1.8 to 2.2 X of the annual salary. So for instance, um, estimated $2,018 to replace a family physician, uh, relatively low on the earning scale compared to a neurosurgeon or a orthopedic surgeon. Let's just take a family doc, primary care. The average cost of replacing a family doc in your healthcare system, $357,000. Wait a minute, what in the world? How, how, how could I be that valuable? Well, uh, first of all, you got to look at going out and recruiting somebody, got to fly somebody into town. If you haven't looked lately, Memphis has no ocean and and, uh, and, and no mountains. So uh, unless you're Penny Hardaway, recruiting people can be a little, a little difficult. Um, if you, um, if you uh, look at uh, why you're recruiting somebody, you're probably going to have to pay a, pay a recruiting service, so-called headhunter service. Typically, that's going to be about 30% of the annual salary. You've got to pay off the top uh, for them to, to sort of thin the application pool and, and point you in the right direction. And then you've got lost uh, charges and, and the cost of, of doing business because the building that the family physician is in is going to still, there's still going to be a rent on that building. Um, the machines that you got, the MRIs while you're looking for that radiologist are not going to be there. So you wind up, uh, it costs a healthcare system a lot to replace somebody. And guys, you know, if you're, if you're unhappy about your EHR and you, you're looking at maybe, well, would the healthcare system hire a scribe for me or split a cost for a scribe or something? 
to help me get out from under this administrative burden. Here's a statistic you might point to. Say, look, if, if you lose me and you, and you, and you burn me into the ground, uh, it's going to cost you more to replace me than it does to pay me. So I think that understanding our value as clinicians is important in order that we can uh, negotiate and leverage uh, the value that we have into not, not getting more things for ourselves or aggrandizing ourselves or collecting wealth for ourselves, but in making work conditions uh, not just bearable or palatable, but making work conditions favorable, not just so we can have a cushy life, but so that we can continue to give better parts of ourselves, not to a computer, for instance, but to a patient. Yeah, those are those are really good statistics. Uh, what one of the favorite things that I've uh, heard you illustrate in the past is this this paradigm in medicine of health being the absence of illness rather than the presence of wellness. And you know, most of the time when we talk about that, we're talking about it uh, in the scope of patient care. But it really speaks to physician well-being too, doesn't it? It does. You know, as you know, Clint, I, I'm still a member of the Department of Psychiatry for. University of Tennessee, and I maintain an active interest in mental health, mental wellness. Um, but there is a bias. You know, in, in medicine, we attack illness uh, more often than we uh, promote wellness. Um, for instance, in the psychiatric latitude, literature of the, of the last 115 years, basically start at 1900, um, 70,000 articles on depression, 57,000 on anxiety. So, you know, basically 125,000 articles only 6,000 on life satisfaction, only 3,000 on happiness, and 900 on joy. So we don't spend as much time talking about the positive end of the scale as we do the negative end of the scale. You know, it's rare that somebody comes in my office and says, hey, I, uh, I want to feel better. Most people come in and say, hey, doc, I've, I pulled something in my leg. I, there's a spot on my face. Um, uh, I got a screen, and they said I had a bad cholesterol. So a lot of people come into my practice wanting to fix problems. Very few um, in, in a, a Western Eurocentric healthcare model, come in and say, "Hey, uh, I want to promote wellness and prevent illness." And so, um, you know, as clinicians, if we can model healthy behaviors and model promoting wellness in ourselves, uh, then we become a teacher of wellness uh, to our patients. Remember, the Latin for doctor is teacher, and uh, you know, we 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 teach by living, we teach by focusing, um, and that's not all just about dyslipidemia. Some of that needs to be about how we get patients to to exercise, to meditate, to pray, um, you know, to, to have community and volunteering, uh, to spend time in, in, in uh, personal, philosophical, spiritual reflection, um, you know, doing things that um, add value to life, not just add seconds to the day. All right. I, I think you're turning us towards a positive direction here. I like where this is headed because uh, we, we've heard the bad news. Let's hear some of the good news about, uh, what physicians can do or what they can turn to uh, to help uh, combat some of these uh, well-being and burnout issues? Well, you know, if you listen this far in a podcast or you click play, I guess you're interested in a topic, and I appreciate that. Uh, but, but I'm with you. I hate just touchy-feely stuff that just doesn't have any evidence. And so when I tell you um, if there are things we can do, this is evidence-based. This is not coming. You know, I didn't pull this out of my issue of FASA. Um, this is This is – there's real data. Um, if you wanted to avoid burnout, uh, get married, go to church, synagogue or temple, or be involved in some uh, faith or belief community, and then have kids. Those three things, a domestic partnership, 
uh, regular involvement in, in a community of worship or faith or religious practice and having a family. Those are the three things that were shown to protect uh, physicians against burnout. For instance, uh, for those who are currently without a partner, uh, they, they ran a risk of, of about 49% of, of uh, uh, excuse me, 51% of burnout. But those who w- had a partner, that risk went down to 35%. So you basically, you can, you can cut your risk of burnout by about 40%. Uh, by being with a partner. Now that wasn't broken into supportive or non-supportive. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess if you, I guess if you got a good one, it's even better. So uh, uh, thank goodness I've got somebody who puts up with me at home and is uh, supportive. So I know that my life is uh, a lot better than when I was a single clinician uh, trying to manage uh, being a single parent and a work home conflict was, was much more acute then um, than it is now. So having, having a, having a, uh, a partner certainly helps. Um, you know, being able to uh, develop a life philosophy um, that is, makes sense for you, is coherent for you, um, is, is very important. I find that uh, reading, uh, even, you know, reading non-medical things, important for me. Spending time outdoors is important for me. Uh, spending time with uh, uh, trusted friends in a, in a spiritual community uh, is incredibly important for me um, and, and helps. I also steam. Uh, not everybody does that, but uh, I... Uh, Skin temperature changes tend to be uh, uh, to, to lift mood, and uh, I believe in the research. Uh, and so I, I installed a, a steam sauna uh, in one of my offices so I could, I could do that uh, you know, at least once or twice a week um, because uh, it helps me. Um, something that's more convenient than that, I guess, if you don't want to go to that trouble, um, there is power in giving back. You'd think, well, heck, I'm burned out. What I need to do is sleep. I don't, I don't need to do something else. But people who give back in the community, people who volunteer in the community, um, are much less likely to be burned out than, than, than those uh, who, who don't. So it's the things that you think about, religious or spiritual practices, spending time with family and friends, um, adopting a healthy philosophic outlook, setting limits at work. It's okay to say no. Most of us that got into medicine have a, a fully developed codependency gene, and we tend to have a tough time saying no. It's all right to protect yourself. Um, there's no way, absolutely no way that you'd try to do a craniotomy, uh, with poor equipment that was rusty and not clean or wasn't well oiled or, you know, was non-functional. You wouldn't dare try to do a laminectomy with, you know, dull scalpel and tools that were bad. You, you wouldn't use, uh, needles that were, allow ourselves to become poor tools, um, is, is, it's just ludicrous, but we, we all do it. It's okay to say no so that you stay sharp. Um, find meaning at work. Find ways to put energy into you as well as take energy out of you. Work is not just a place to get depleted. Work needs to be a place to become repleted. It needs to be a, a place to become completed. Um, we don't just go to work and empty ourselves out. We fill ourselves back up. I, dramatic illustration to me, um, as I was uh, – getting this lecture together. I, um, uh, working at West cancer center, I had a lady who come back for, came back for a three month appointment. And, uh, so I walked in the door, how are you doing? And here's this lady who's in a cancer center and, and she has health problems that are just, you know, a, a mile long. And she looks at me and she says, Oh, I'm so glad you're doing better. And I said, Oh, well, thank you. Frankly, I didn't know what she was talking about. She said, the last time I was here, um, you had laryngitis and you could barely talk. And I'm so glad you're better. I prayed for you. And so uh, very quickly, I, I 
I learned to sort of bracket my own problems and say, wow, if this lady who has metastatic cancer, she's dealing with it, is concerned about me having a cold, um, that, that's, that's pretty powerful. And so I, I, I gained energy, I gained value, I gained meaning from that visit rather than giving it away. So um, that's the kind of thing that we look for. It's okay to be vulnerable with your patients. It's okay to, you know, to a certain degree, we have to maintain our professional decorum um, but, and our professional ethics, but it's okay to be a human being. And uh, it's, it's okay to gain from your patients the value and respect that made you want to go into medicine in the first place. Yeah, I, I love just the thought of surrounding yourself with just positive things, positive people, uh, and it's a it's an investment in yourself. I, I think uh, it's it's difficult when you're in the hustle and bustle of practicing medicine and then life outside of of work to to think about that. But that's a really, I think, a really important uh, tactic for combating this. Uh, hey, Clint, before you before we move on, let me make an MMS plug uh, uh, plug. Um, let me make an MS plug. You know, in the 1950s, 75% of docs belonged to the AMA. Uh, now, those numbers are more like 15%. So you've had basically a five-fold decrease in the numbers of clinicians who are involved in organized medicine. Um, I'm, I'm the president of AIPM, the Academy of Integrated Pain Management, and, and we've seen our membership dwindle uh, through the years because people are just less likely to be involved in organizations and I don't say you have to be involved in, in any particular medical society, but the truth is, if you don't find some way to connect with your colleagues outside of the workspace, um, you're really cheating yourself. And organized medicine is one way to do that. So unsolicited, and I promise, guys, Clint didn't ask me to say this, uh, involvement in the society is one way that you can connect to folks um, over over a glass of sparkling water or another beverage. You can you can you can talk about the issues at work. You can talk about things that are changing in healthcare. You know, heck, you can you can uh, gripe about politicians, or you could potentially meet politicians and ask them to to change things for you. You know, it's um, it's a way uh, to connect with others uh, that helps to prevent burnout. Well, uh, thank you for that unprompted plug. And uh, yes, that's <laughs> that's, uh, uh, that's definitely uh, an area that we're working on. This podcast is evidence of that, and. You know, I mentioned our women in medicine group earlier. We do some things that are specific to residents as well. You know, everybody should go to our website, mdmemphis.org, and, and look at some of those things. And if you're not a member, I would encourage you to join. There's a, uh, a litany of benefits that I won't get into today, but uh, uh, feel free to go to the website or, or give me a call. Uh, I'll, I'll give my phone number today, 901-761-0200. Give us a call, and uh, we'd love to talk to you more about uh, both membership and uh, some solutions to uh, the topic that we're talking today. Uh, moving back into kind of the, the macro dynamics of, of this issue, uh, Dr. Jackson, what are some of the organizational practices that you're seeing pop up to uh, promote uh, physician well-being? Well, just the things that we talked about, um, you know, being aware, uh, being aware of work-life balance, important. And everybody's got an eagle on the wall, you know, those motivational deals, you know, uh, with with, uh, with the posters and, and the sayings and all that. And everybody talks work-life balance, but actually people are doing it. People are, people are encouraging people to take time off, um, to not carry the phone around with them everywhere and to always be working, uh, to not answer emails when they're gone, you know, to put the deal on their email says, hey, I'm out of the office. Um, 
because one of the things that, that digitization has done is it has, you know, remember those 93 ancillary tasks per day that we talk about. As a clinician, if you want to, you can always be available. I found myself uh, answering patient refill requests from Africa uh, two years ago, and I thought, this is absolutely nuts. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm working uh, when I'm, you know, a continent away and an ocean away. Um, so organizations are, are, are actively telling people, avoid that. Promoting clinician autonomy, important piece of promoting wellness, providing adequate support services and resources, and then cultivating a collegial work environment. We talked specifically about uh, sexual harassment. We talked about work-life balance. Um, those are important issues uh, to be addressed, and organizations can pay, uh, pay, play a powerful role. Um, I, I think also one thing that organizations are trying to do is, is get people involved in mentorship. And again, here's, here's another plug for the society. Um, having folks who've kind of been through what you've been through is an important aspect of living. And it doesn't always have to be somebody in your specialty. One of the most important mentors for me uh, in this town was Joe Weems, who's an ENT surgeon. And Joe, um, just always, you know, kind to me, being involved. Uh, Dennis Rigdon, an anesthesiologist, you know, just, just uh, guys who would reach out to you, ask how you're doing, ask how your family's doing. You know, Ray Felsicar, gastroenterologist, you know, what do these guys have to do with a, a family physician or a palliative physician? They, they weren't necessarily career mentors for me, but they were clinician mentors in that they helped me to maintain a sense of professionalism and what it is to, to do this work. And, and uh, so I, I give honor to those guys today. And uh, they were mentors to me. Organizations are trying to set that up to make sure through leadership academies or training experiences, et cetera, that, that mentorship continues after residency, that early in career, mid-career, you have somebody to look up to uh, to help out. All right. Before we talk about uh, some solutions at the end of the podcast, I'm going to kind of give you some liberty to talk about, you know, the end of the spectrum uh, of this issue, which is, you know, depression moving in uh, to suicide. What's what's some of the information uh, that you want to share about those uh, those two issues? Well, again, we mentioned that burnout is work specific. Depression is global. Uh, but along this idea of trying to be a superhuman and trying not to tell anybody that we're vulnerable, um, Depression, uh, when it does occur in clinicians, um, is often hidden. Often we don't uh, uh, seek treatment uh, for depression because we don't want to admit it. We don't recognize it. And then we, we also, um, you know, some of us face depression, can be concerned, well, am I going to have to put this on a privileging application, for instance? Or um, if anybody ever asks if I've been treated for mental illness, will I have to report that I was on say an SSRI or something for depression. So um, it, it can be very common. Remember that in the general population, uh, depression runs about 10, 12% uh, for major depressive disorder. There was a study of Canadian physicians, uh, 3,200 of them over a two week period, um, a quarter of them, 25% had depressed mood. So you're looking at double the general population rate uh, of depression. So um, clinicians are not immune and in fact, Far from being immune, uh, clinicians probably at increased risk, maybe a twofold risk uh, to the general population. Now, unfortunately, uh, due to the high rates of depression and the low rates of acknowledgement and seeking treatment, uh, clinicians uh, can be at high risk of the ultimate negative outcome of, of, of negative mood, and that's suicide. It's estimated that we lose about 400 physicians to suicide a year. 
That's one million patients that lose their clinician because of suicide a year. An entire medical class uh, for four medical schools is lost uh, due to suicide. It's probably an underestimate because uh, suicide only gets listed um, if it's uh, an absolute uh, known case. Um, most clinicians, when they're filling out a death certificate for a colleague, if uh, there's suspicious death, they don't list the suicide uh, out of respect for the family. And so um, it's a tragedy, a tragedy of, 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 of grave proportions, and we need to be attentive uh, to our colleagues. Uh, I'm not going to go through the general risk for suicide here uh, or the protective uh, factors against suicide, but I will say that one thing that is counterintuitive is that physicians typically don't suicide when there's a crisis, uh, divorce, financial problems, health problems, uh, domestic partner with health problems. That's not the time typically when clinicians um, despair. Why? Well, we're trained to be superheroes. So if there's a crisis, hey, I, I start ripping off the jacket, S is on the chest, I wade in, you know, I'm here to save the day, or I'm tough, I can make it. The thing that typically gets clinicians in trouble is a threat to the professional identity. Through professional training, we become so closely identified with our professional identity. If there's something that threatens that identity, such as uh, a Medicare audit, um, a patient complaint, a malpractice suit, uh, being brought before, say, the Institutional Review Board or the, uh, uh, the Physician Staff uh, uh, Outcomes Committee, Quality Committee. Um, those are the types of things uh, that, can, uh, that can really dig at uh, clinicians' well-being um, and can place them at high risk. If one of those things happens to you, um, by all means, raise your hand, reach out, find somebody to talk to because you're at risk. Um, I've been through some of those things. Uh, as a medical director of a healthcare agency, uh, we had a Medicare audit. Things turned out okay, but we had a Medicare audit. Um, I have been involved in four malpractice litigation issues. Um, again, things turned out okay, but it was extremely difficult to go through that. So I've experienced some of those things and I can tell you uh, personally that it was extremely stressful and reaching out to people in uh, my uh, spiritual community, people in my family community and people in my professional community was critical to me being able to keep my head on straight and to maintain uh, not only successful practice, but maintain a, a balanced life through some extremely challenging situations. So pardon the personal reference, but I just want to be very uh, transparent here and say, that this is not something that's on paper. It's real to me because I've been through some of these issues in terms of personal challenges and professional challenges. And I've found that reaching out to others was the right answer um, in those cases because uh, that support was key to me being successful in moving through those difficult times. All right. So we've, we've been up and we've been down today uh, all through this uh, almost one hour together. Let's, let's end on uh, a good topic. So, Tell us about some of the good news in terms of what are these local and national resources? We've, we've talked about some at the medical society level and at the employer level. I know there's some, some burnout inventories out there and there's a, a national society dedicated to, uh, to clinician wellness. Can you, can you talk about some of those? Well, uh, Clint, you're probably aware of the ballot groups and most people would, would, would be aware of the ballot groups. Um, that's B A L I N T the American balance society. Uh, is an organization that's dedicated to improving wellness uh, among clinicians. And uh, balance groups are sort of a, sort of like group therapy for docs. Um, uh, and so you could, you could look into that if you want to. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a clinician 
Starla Fitch, uh, F-I-T-C-H, Starla Fitch, uh, who's really dedicated her mid-career uh, to clinician wellness. So you can look her up online. Uh, she's doing a lot of, of, of good work in the clinician wellness space. Um, the tool and survey that I use, I don't use the Maslach uh, burnout inventory. What I use, I measure my own personal wellness with something called the WHO-5, W-H-O-5, WHO-5. And you can, uh, you can look that up online. You can, you can print it uh, from your computer for three cents. It's paper. Uh, it's, it's free. You don't have to pay for it. Um, and I, I take it every two to three weeks, see how I'm doing, um, and uh, you know, to make sure that my score is appropriate. So if any of you guys are interested, contact me uh, through the society. I'll be happy to walk you through how that WHO-5 is used. Or you can just, uh, you know, go to PubMed on the WHO-5 and you can find articles about it, how it's used worldwide, really, to measure wellness. I use it as a personal tool to measure burnout. Um, it's a leading indicator for me. I tend to be too much of a, a yes person in terms of projects. And so what I'll do is if my score gets too low on the WHO-5, I just stop all new projects and kind of recharge, get some things through the pipeline, make sure the outbox looks fatter than the inbox for a while, and then, uh, then I hit reset and, and start again. So... Lots of good things. You mentioned that the society is going to take on uh, clinician wellness. We're going to uh, set in place a network um, where you can reach out for help if need be. Um, you know, sort of a hotline deal that's not tied into the traditional uh, mental illness session so that if there are any concerns about confidentiality or any concerns about um, uh, uh, declaring in the future, you know, I, I received treatment for this or that, this is not treatment. It's just talking about burnout and maintaining wellness. Um, and I, I think that uh, that's very exciting for me because a healthier clinician workforce makes for better patients uh, in the Mid-South. Uh, it makes for better colleagues, better families, and uh, medicine becomes healthier. And I think that's a, a great thing. Um, physician heal thyself is more than a proverb. It's actually a pretty good way to live. And we want to make sure that we uh, are, are the best versions of ourselves for our patients because they they really deserve that. They don't deserve sort of a, um, a, a caricature or a, a hollow set of ourselves. They, they deserve the best that we can do and be for them. And that's what we want to promote in the Memphis Medical Society. Thank you again, Dr. Jackson, for the plug. And I mean, the, the icing on the cake for the Thrive program that we're developing is uh, that we're going to pay uh, for the appointments through our Memphis Medical Foundation, our, our charitable 501c3 arm. Uh, for those that uh, that need to speak with a psychologist, and again, more to more to come on that as we uh, come into 2019. Um, Dr. Jackson, it really brings us to the end today, but I, I didn't want to adjourn without giving you the opportunity to to address anything else around burnout that you want to talk about uh, today. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, once again, I want to thank you, Clint, for uh, as as director for 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 that, uh, you know, you're not just trying to gain memberships. You're, you're trying to actually do something positive for us as clinicians and promoting this wellness program. Um, I think it's, it's tremendous. It's great use of society's resources. Uh, it's adding value back to us. So when people say, well, why be a part of the society? Why pay my dues? You know, why spend my CME money on that? Well, because directly you're getting something back here and it's not just a political action committee. It's not just cocktail parties. Uh, this is something that we're doing. Um, we're seeing as members that the society is giving back to us and investing in us. I think that's tremendously valuable. Uh, it's the right thing to do. And I applaud you guys for your efforts. I look forward to, uh, to the fruits of your labor as we all become uh, better versions of ourselves so our patients can get better care. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Jackson. We're going to put that on the poster. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to remind all of our listeners that if you have questions on the podcast or if you need that CME verification, send them to info at mdmemphis.org. Uh, we're also always looking for new topics uh, uh, that were relative uh, to physicians. So if you've got one, uh, send us a note there as well. Uh, that concludes our podcast today. For Dr. Clay Jackson, I'm Clint Cummins. Thank you all out there for joining us. You've been listening to the Memphis MedCast, a podcast series from Memphis Medical Society. Subscribe to our podcast anywhere you enjoy listening to podcasts or mdmemphis.org.